Good morning. I appreciate all the men that led us this morning, and I'm very grateful for the thoughtfulness that went into that, and we're so thankful to have a great many of you who are visiting with us again this week. When we approach the various things that we seek to do each and every first day of the week, I like what Ronnie said. We don't want it to ever become mundane and just a a matter of going through the motions. And so there's a reason for why we do everything that we do. There's a reason why we take the Lord's Supper upon the first day of every week. He cited the example of the early church in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. It wasn't just one group, one place doing that, but it was the custom of the early church to do so following the apostles' example. We also find that folks were singing. They were singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, songs of praise to God, songs in which they encouraged one another, songs in which they made commitments to God and to one another. And we read in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 that that's what the early church did. We're striving in each and everything we do to follow the New Testament pattern. Now, in that, and because of that, there may be questions that you have from time to time. And in fact, recognizing that and seeing that, you have asked a lot of questions at our prompting and what we call the question and answer sessions. Uh, this evening is one such occasion where we're going to look into some of the questions that you've asked. There are some interesting questions, some stem winders, some toughies, And I'm so thankful it's Hiram's month to do that, and he is going to deal with those this evening. He had the the thought, and I think it's a good one. We give you email, we give you a cell phone where you can call or you can text, you can come up to us and ask whatever questions you want. We want you to know that when you do that, we never make judgments about you. We just think that that's maybe something somebody else has on their mind, not necessarily something you're struggling with. But it also comes to our attention that maybe you would like to be anonymous. And we, we would maybe even in some sense prefer that. Um, we certainly are okay with you doing it the way you're doing it. But we have mailboxes. We have mailboxes in here in Linda's office. Uh, typically during service time, those doors are open. You can just go find either one of our names because we get together to talk about them. And write down your question. You know, when uh, Kathy's had like been a part of Secret Sisters, you know, where you have a, a lady in the congregation who you don't reveal your identity. She gets me to do sometimes notes for her, and so I take it in my right hand. I'm a left-handed person. I take it and I write it in my right hand. They'll never figure out who I am. Maybe you want to do that. Put your questions in your other hand, write it, and you can be this as, as transparent as you want. We also have boxes out here. Every one of us do. By the way, go check your mailbox if you haven't done that lately. Maybe something in there. Find our name on the chart and put that question in there. Let us know what it is you'd like for us to address. Appreciate you doing it to such a high degree of participation. And would encourage you to keep doing that. You know, there are some individuals, there are some that we know about in society, even if we don't know our Bibles. For example, we're coming into a time of the year where there are people who think in biblical terms about the wise men or the shepherds. Perhaps would not even know what testament that's in or what exact context it is except for the birth of Jesus. But they know those names. And you know, there are a great many in society who know and would think about the good Samaritan. And then there's the one that we want to look at this morning, an individual that... We even talk about that. It's used in common vernacular. It's used in movies and in print. And that is the prodigal son. He represents quite a bit. He represents an individual that all of us can relate to. 
It's in the context of Jesus talking about the reality of lostness and the attitude of God toward those who find themselves lost. There are actually three parables, the context of which is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And there are those religious leaders who don't like this because it's not what they would do. And they believe it doesn't reflect what God wants us to do. Jesus makes it very clear that God loves the sinner. And it's Luke that really gives us this greatest insight in the idea of a sinner being one who has lost their way, who is misguided, who is lost. And so after speaking about a sheep and about a coin, Jesus focuses in on the flesh and blood of it all. Something that perhaps we would say that we could relate to most of all. When Jesus said that a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them came to his father, and he said unto him, Father, give me the inheritance that is mine. And the father divided his estate among them and gave them everything. And not long after that, the younger son took everything and gathered them together and took his trip into a far country. And there he spent his estate with loose living. And it came to pass that after he had spent all that there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. And he went and he joined himself to a certain citizen of that country and he sent him out into his field to feed a swine. And he would have fain filled his stomach with the pods which the swine did eat and no man gave him anything. That's Luke chapter 15 verse 11 through verse 16. I read not long ago about a 17 year old boy who was walked into a Perkins restaurant where two highway patrolmen were finishing their meal. And he lay spread eagle on the ground. And he said, please don't shoot me. The car is in the parking lot. You see, this young man had been so riddled with guilt and so overcome with it that even though these men had no idea, weren't even looking for the car, he confessed to a crime that didn't happen in Spearfish, but over in Madison. One of my favorite songs, and I don't know how often we sing it here, or makes the statement... If you are tired of the load of your sin, and if you would desire a new life to begin, I believe that there are a great many around us who are sick and tired of being emotionally and spiritually sick and tired. And that brings us to the events that we read about in Luke chapter 15. And as we examine it a little bit more closely, we find that things didn't start off so bad for the prodigal son. He had a wealthy father, and he had a willing father, and he had a world of things to try. And he was ready to do so. And so the father gave him his portion of his entire estate to go and do with whatever he wanted to do with. Didn't put any stipulations on it. Didn't put any conditions, but gave it to him. And we remember that he goes out there and he has a good time. But it it seems very quickly that the tide turned and things began to change. He spent everything. And we find him going from somebody who had all the resources at his disposal as being someone who is abject and in poverty and in want and struggling. In fact, things get so bad that he is eyeing those carob pods that you see there in front of you. The pods that were given to the swine were domestic uh, livestock feed. And sometimes the very poor were those who had to resort to eating it. 
But a Jewish person listening to this would have had disdain because this is the most detestable thing that a Jewish person could do and presumably this prodigal son would have been of the Jewish community so that Jesus could relate it to them. Here he is in a circumstance where he's going to do what people would not do unless they absolutely had to, but the young man had gone through everything that he had and his circumstance was desperate. He was willing to do that. He had come to the very end. You know, we think in terms, those who have dealt with livestock, if you've ever raised hogs, it's different in our country than it was when they would go out and kind of free range in the, the Near East. But we think about the circumstances of those that raise hogs today. And what will happen in those situations is that farmers, those with pigs, will feed them things that if you didn't have pigs, that you would throw in your trash can. Because hogs are willing to eat just about anything. And we would call all that, when we think about what that food is that you feed the hogs, we call it slop. You ever seen or been a part of slopping the hogs? You know what that's about? They love to feed in a group, don't they? And they will take that disgusting, inedible stuff because they just want to eat. They're ready to devour anything. Do you see that prodigal son in that way? He's desperate. He's come to the very end. And he is willing to do anything. It's when he finds himself in this place that the story begins to turn And Jesus wants us. He wants us to see the very high, high that's promised. And he wants us to see the very low, low that's delivered. And if you can imagine it in this way, that here is the young son, even with his resources and even with his friends. And it seems that now that everybody's abandoned him, the closest thing he has to friends are those pigs out in the field with him. That that shovel might have been the resources that he had and the desires that he had and the friends that were prodding him on. And it's a shovel in his hand, figuratively speaking, and he's digging this pit that ultimately is a pit of desperation. And when he finds himself in the bottom and he's tired of digging, he's ready to make his way out. Jesus presents this for us so that we can appreciate that ourselves. How do we dig out of desperation Maybe we find ourselves or that we know somebody and we love somebody who we know is in the pit of desperation. Perhaps they are looking now for a way out of it. What does this text tell us that can help us to understand how to dig our way out of desperation? The first thing that we have got to do if we are going to dig out of desperation is we must realize it. He was in the pig pen, but the Bible says that he came to himself in verse 17. Now, I think they're not as popular now as they were a few years ago, but there was a time when everything seemed to revolve around zombies. And folks began to ask, where did all this come from in the first place? Did this idea of zombies come from South America, as some believe, or did it come from Africa? But cultural anthropologists believe that perhaps the earliest practice of the belief in zombies may have been in Haitian culture. In the Haitian culture, it was believed that sorcerers among the people would bring the dead ancestors uh, of them back to life. And when they brought them back from the grave, they were these mindless slaves. And of course, Hollywood got a hold of that and they embellished and they gave us this picture that zombies also like to voraciously eat other human beings. But the idea was that they were the walking dead. They were just numb to their pain and their injuries. And of course, everyone in those movies and those shows, none of them wants to be a zombie because it is a miserable existence. 
You know, the Bible talks about the condition of one who is in the pit of desperation because of sin. Wants us to understand how that is so that it will change our thinking about it. Because if we can get numb to the feeling of what it is to be in sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 5, for example, or Colossians 2 and verse 13, the Bible says, talking to his audience, those who were now out of the pit, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul says that she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Even in this story, you'll notice in verse 24 that the celebration that the father has is because this, my son, was dead and is alive again. When we find ourselves in the pit of desperation because of sin in our lives, we can become numb to the presence of it. And so sometimes it seems like a bad dream or a nightmare and we just want to wake up. And in fact, that's what happens with this young man in this parable. You know, there are two times in the scripture where uh, the Apostle Paul is telling those that he's writing to that they need to wake up. It's Romans 13 and verse 11 and Ephesians 5 and verse 14. And in that latter passage, he even says, arise from the dead. We can become so comfortable and so numb in sin that we become oblivious to how it's affecting our lives. Has it ever been that we find ourselves in a situation where We enter into a relationship that we know is not right. That relationship may be a friend who's going to lead us to think in ways that God doesn't want us to think about the big decisions of life, to lead us onto the broad path, or maybe it's more intimate. Maybe we find ourselves entering into an illicit relationship. And we make ourselves so numb and so comfortable that we justify and rationalize And say it's okay. Or perhaps we find ourselves in a situation where we numb ourselves to the effect of bad habits and what they're doing to our lives. Or the way that we live that's worldliness. If we are ever going to dig ourselves out of that pit of desperation, we've got to realize it. We've got to wake up. We've got to arise from the dead. You know, with those zombies, it's a a scary picture when the dead come to life. But it is not a scary picture when one goes from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive again. It's when one who is physically alive but is spiritually dead. This young man who finds himself down in the bottom of that pit of desperation, he's beginning his way out when he realizes exactly how things are. He begins to wake up. But I want you to notice the second thing we notice here is that to dig ourselves out of desperation, we need to to reflect on it. We need to reflect on it. In verse 17, we find that that's exactly what happens with this young man. He begins to think about how the circumstances are at home. He says, my father's hired servants, they have leftovers to eat. And here I am starving to death. Things aren't as good as I thought they were going to be here. As I look at my situation, where I am right now, it's desperate and it's dire. If I think about how things really are at home, they aren't near as bad as I thought they were, and that's exactly where I would like to be. You know, sometimes we call that process soul-searching. But what the Bible calls it is self-examination. At the end of the second letter of the Corinthians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, examine yourselves Whether you be in the faith, test your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that you are in Christ, lest you are disqualified. And I find it very interesting that Paul uses two distinct words in that verse. The first is the word examine. 
And the idea of examination is to take the body of evidence that is out there and to sort through that like a lawyer. And as you go through the case study, you, as you sift through it, you find out what the facts are and you come to a conclusion. And then there's that word test. It's almost like a scientific term. The idea is of taking something and putting it under the microscope and examining the contents to see exactly what it is. What the Apostle Paul is, is encouraging us to do is something that we've got to consciously decide to do. When's the last time that we have looked into our lives and we have examined the contents and we have tested ourselves to say, where am I spiritually? You see, here's a tendency that we have. When it comes to examining our, ourselves spiritually, we can be like the defense attorney who openly and cavalierly declares the innocence of her victim before she even looks into the facts of the case. Or we can be like a scientist who has a deadly pathogen on the slide and declares it harmless before he even brings it into focus, except that the person on trial in the examination that we serve as a lawyer for is ourselves. And the deadly pathogen is sin. It's so easy for us to put ourselves in this default position to where we say, not guilty, I didn't do it. Parents, have you ever experienced that with your children? Who got into the cookies? Not me. You may see that cake saver up there. My mom always put cookies in like a a, a cookie jar. But the Gillespie's, that's Kathy's maiden name, they put them sometimes in a cake saver. When Kathy was six years old, her mom made a fresh batch of chocolate chip cookies. And she put them inside of a cake saver, much like the one you see on the screen there. And her dad said to Kathy and Christy, Christy was five, I suppose, at that time, we're going to go over to the church building. Don't get into the cookies. I came back a few minutes later, and dad came up to Kathy and Christy and said, did you get into the cookies? What did they say? No, sir. But dad said something they didn't expect. He said, put out your hands. They put out their hands, palms up, and amazingly their hands had turned green. What dad had done is he had put green food coloring on the the locking mechanism of that cake saver. And you can imagine how that turned out for Kathy and Christy. You know, sometimes we find ourselves caught red-handed in the cookie jar or green-handed on the cake saver and we're elbow deep in self-denial. Denying the reality of the situation. But I want you to notice that the prodigal comes to himself. He realizes exactly how things are. He reflects on it and he says, I don't like this. I don't want it to remain this way. If we're ever going to get out of that pit of desperation, we've got to honestly look at self and say, this is how it is. But you know, he didn't even stop there. I want you to notice that if we're going to dig ourselves out of desperation, we must resolve with regards to it. You'll notice as he is having this conversation in his mind, he says, I will arise. I will go to my father and I will say. Dr. Guy Winch says that sometimes we give more regard to our physical health than we do our emotional and our spiritual health. He says sometimes we uh, find ourselves not reflecting on that. He said maybe somebody comes along, some well-meaning person, and they'll, they'll say to us, you just need to shake that off. It's all in your head. But when somebody breaks their leg, nobody comes along to them and says, you just need to shake it off. It's all in your leg. 
You see, when it comes to the, the fact that we ourselves are hard on ourselves, we may find ourselves being critical when we fail and when we falter. And in that condition, we can't see things in the right way. When we look at the circumstances of our lives, there needs to be some resolve. It is not the thing to do when you find yourself in the pit of desperation to say, I can't help myself, I just, I'm just stuck here. Do you realize the prodigal could have done that? And so many prodigals have. They've said, I've gone too far, I've sank too low, there's no use, here I am and here I will stay. Oh, the prodigal knew full well what he had done. But he didn't want to do it anymore. And so he had to work up the courage, he had to work up the nerve to do that. It's an interesting concept of what he does there. It's the idea that the Apostle Paul, at least the word that he uses, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, he said, And I, brethren, when I came unto you, determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This idea of determination is an idea of resolve, again, to, to sort through matters and to come to a decisive decision. The Apostle Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 37 about a young man who had to determine something clearly in his mind. We have got to make the determination that we don't have to stay there. Things aren't so bad that this is the only solution for us. What keeps us from resolving to get out of the pit of desperation? Fear, embarrassment, shame, pride. Don't you know that the prodigal had to wade through all of that? There was so much ahead of him that he had to overcome that I'm sure he did not want to endure. But the powerful draw of being back in the father's house was so great that he's now building his resolve to dig out. But I want you to notice a fourth thing that we have to do if we're going to dig out of our pit of desperation is we must repent. In verse 18... He said what he was going to do. And I want you to notice that he realizes that. He says, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And then he gets up and he goes to do that. All the intentions in the world are not enough. We've got to act on them. There has to be a change from the inside out. And I want you to notice the change that's come over this young man. He goes from being a spoiled brat, if we can call him that, who couldn't wait to get out of his father's house to live it up to this broken, contrite, sadder but wiser young man who can't wait to get back to the Father's house. And that repentance is laid out for us. He does it. Verse 21, he says what he said he was going to say. And there's some things we can notice about his repentance, isn't there? When we look at the repentance of this young man, it was specific. Now he doesn't talk to him about the the. He doesn't give him a blow-by-blow account of all the stuff he had done in the far country. No reading here in the text of him talking about in specific terms about the prostitutes or any other sins that he may have or he was alleged to have done. But here's what he did do. He got up in front of his father and he said, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, there's a vertical crime and there's a horizontal crime. And I want all of it behind me. Let's be careful that we never find ourselves in the private context of the home or even in a public response of still not being able to swallow our pride and to be 
specific in our sincerity and to say, if I have done something to somebody out there, I'm so sorry. There's, there's no specific absolving or facing of that thing. But here's the, rich young, the, the, the prodigal son who comes home and he's very specific. But he's also responsible. He takes responsibility for it. You know what you don't read in this parable? You don't read him saying, but it was my friends. It was the prostitutes. It was the older brother. Father, it was you or somebody else. He realized that ultimately the burden of guilt lay on his shoulder. And he took responsibility for it. And do you notice the humility that's a part of that? Until we get a hold of our worthlessness apart from God, we'll stay in the pit. But when we can say, I don't care. I I care about my influence. I certainly care about God, but I don't care about my pride so much that I won't humble myself before the cross of the one who humbled himself in the greatest way possible. But it was also sacrificial. You notice what he's ready to do? He said, "I, I know that there's consequences to what I've done. I'll be a hired servant. I don't have to be a son anymore. Do you see the stepladder out of the pit of desperation? Be specific. Take responsibility for it. Humble yourself and be ready to sacrifice. But you see what makes this parable so powerful is that the one who holds all the cards, the one who has all the power, the one who has all the authority in this lesson is willing to do just what the son wanted, and that's to restore him. He's eager. In fact, I know there's so many beautiful moments in this parable. I believe that my favorite part has to be verse 20. When the young man was still a long way off, the father lifts up his eyes and he sees him a long way off. And he runs. And he falls on his neck. And he kisses him. Now the prodigal son, for his part, goes ahead and and spills out this speech that he's rehearsed. And the father's response is, let's celebrate. My son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Let's make merry. Don't you see God that way? Can you see God that way? I know it's dark down in the pit, but there's a light above. And it shines that truth. It's the truth that that, that, uh, Todd read so well to us a moment ago in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. It's the picture of God in the face of man's sin. What happens? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, we see God in pursuit. God calls to him. God comes to him. And God speaks to him in verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 11. And that's the picture of God in the story of the prodigal son. The song I mentioned at the beginning of this lesson says, If you are tired of the load of your sin, let Jesus come into your heart. If you desire a new life to begin... Let Jesus come into your heart. Just now, accept Him. Throw open the door. Delay no more. Let Jesus come into your heart. How do you do that? Well, we see it laid out for us. For the prodigal son, one who was already a child, it meant coming home, repenting, and being restored. For the one who's never made that decision, The Father's arms are just as wide open for you. Respond to His grace 
Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and the solution to the sin problem that we all share. Repenting of our sins, changing from the inside out, confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Romans 10 and verse 10. And allowing yourself to be buried. An old man will go down into the grave and coming up out of the waters of baptism, one is coming up out of the pit of desperation. A son, a daughter of the Heavenly Father. It's dirty. It's lonely. Maybe it's smelly down in that pit of desperation. But not in the Father's house. If you need to come home, why not right now as we stand and sing?